Welcome to Akasha Talks, a podcast on consciousness, healing, and different ways to interact and weave those together, both old and new, to be able to get the most out of your life. I'm your host, Lance Baker, coming to you from Newcastle, Australia. Hope you kick back, relax, and enjoy the show. This week, I've got on Alison Davies, a brain care specialist who works with music therapy to unlock the powers of your brain to help it work for you and relieve some of the tension that gets put in there from everyday life. Today, we're mostly talking about the 12 pillars of brain care that she's come up with and the journey she had to find the need for that with dealing with being on the autism spectrum and being overwhelmed from all different kinds of things. It's a very interesting chat. I'm sure you'll agree. So make yourself comfortable and enjoy. Welcome, Alison Davies. I'm excited to have you on. I've watched your webinar last week and seen a fair few of your things online. And when I first read some stuff of what you shared, I got really excited. Sent you an, an invite straight away because I knew how great your stuff would fit with the kind of people who listen to this. You're a neurologic music therapist and a brain care specialist uh, coming from Mm -hmm. brain injuries and loving music. That uh, excites me. (laughs) I have. (laughs) And excites me too. That I do here, but they're they're very hippie (laughs) sound healings. Uh, And I liked your approach is very simple and real and this does this, this helps this, and that your 12 pillars seem to tie into each other very much, that each one seems to flow to the next or a previous. I'll be excited to have a chat to you. So welcome. Thank you. And I've got to say, in response to your initial email that you sent me, I got straight on your podcast and into the first episode and I was hooked. It was so good. Your story's amazing. Yeah, it wasn't fun to live. I can appreciate it now. I wish along this pathway I'd had a bunch of the tools I have now and had heard of stuff that you do back then. I can see your 12 pillars. Any one of those would have helped take one or two off the paint scale back then. Uh, Absolutely. I, I never had a, an overwhelming problem with anxiety before. I was definitely an overthinker, but not anxious. But nowadays, nine out of 10 people I deal with in my clinic have got anxiety. So I know everybody listening to this should be able to pick up something that they can integrate in their life and notice some difference. And uh, I've, I've got to admit, uh, the day after watching your webinar, I uh, I utilized some of your things for my anxiety climb. I'm like, we well, got to do this and this. <laughs> and I thought, I'm integrating this so quickly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's it because it's so simple. Yeah. And it's often a lot of the stuff we're already doing are things that are supporting our brain to function. So we don't even have to change our lifestyle that much or learn too hard. We can just start doing things. Hmm. We are musical beings. So it comes really quickly. It does, yes. Mm. Uh, and so I'd like to 
I'd like to roll back before we describe what it is that uh, you do and work with and how that can help people and find out how you got to that point of what inspired you to flow down uh, this pathway. Sure. Um, okay, pull me in if I talk to for too long because I do like to talk about myself. <laughs> I So I've been a music therapist for many years and I was working as a clinician with children um, and adults. Um, and after 10 or so years, I started to get this unsettled feeling that I was not serving in the best way that I could. I realised that a lot of people coming to music therapy were sort of disempowered to the fact that they actually can use music strategically themselves. And we're definitely a, a society where we think, oh, I'm musical or, oh, I'm not musical. And so when you go to a therapist for music therapy, you are relying on the music therapist to be the change maker in your dynamic, your family or your child's life or whoever it's for. So I really felt unsettled about that. Um, I didn't want to be the reason people were not harnessing their own musicality. Around about this same time, I was really struggling with my own anxiety. And like you, I'd never really experienced anxiety before. Um, but I was basically, I was just getting nailed. <laughs> I went really quickly. From the time I was pregnant with my second child, I just went really, really quickly into, spiralled into a really person who struggled to function on a day-to-day -day level. So I could not make myself a cup of tea because I couldn't remember how to do it. I couldn't finish the task. I couldn't um, follow two or three step instructions. Um, couldn't remember when I was driving. I couldn't remember which way to turn at intersections or roundabouts, even in my hometown. So things that I definitely should have been able to do based on the fact that I'd always been able to do them. Um, and then I became pretty nonverbal. This was about 2016. Um, and there was about three weeks there that I really didn't speak at all. And also at this time, uh, my daughter was being assessed for autism. So long story short, in 2016 was one of those years where all the big things happen and then you can never be the same person again. Mm -hmm. So my daughter was diagnosed with autism. I was diagnosed with autism and I realised I could no longer um, work in a modality where I felt that this wasn't the best way for me to do it. So I basically closed my clinic um, and decided to start again with something new. At this time, because I was struggling with my ability to function and my daughter was having really enormous meltdowns, so like, you know, some of them would go for three or four hours and they were very destructive and uh, frightening and just constant and it was a you know, our whole family was in a really tricky place to be. Um, I got to a point where I just decided I had to work out how to move myself forward. I, ve I very much felt stuck. I was very shut down, so I couldn't feel things. I couldn't speak. Um I don't know if you've experienced that shutdown. 
but it's so, ugh. Yeah. The hardest, darkest feeling in the world, isn't it? It is. I see it a lot with my son because he, he's autistic and he gets into that mode. I, I see it with a lot of women going through pregnancy and just afterwards with the hormonal change and that pregnancy mm. brain, it can overwhelm. So I imagine both of those things at once would be a heavy bag to carry. <laughs> It sure was. And I um, I also have sensory processing disorder. And so for me, the experience of pregnancy was extremely overloading um, and very, very difficult to sort of regulate my way through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then from the moment my daughter was born, she was screaming and screaming and couldn't be settled. So I had never known, I had never um, experienced sensory overload to the extent that I I did once I became a parent. Now, the reason I, I went through my whole life just, you know, I, I feel like I was pretty regulated and, and doing okay. I'd never actually thought that I was an anxious person, but that was because I didn't un- understand anxiety. I thought anxiety was the, a person who worries about things, doesn't want to be late, um, you know. I was really relaxed with all of that. I couldn't care less if I got lost while I was driving somewhere or I never worried about things, but I had this internal feeling of rage and anger and it was always internal. Nothing that I did outwardly reflected it, but even from a little child, I felt like, is this just what people are like? And it felt red and hot Um, and it was a direct result of the feeling of my clothes touching me um, and needing to make eye contact and um, concentrate in a classroom. Um... So I was able at this time to really reflect back on my whole life and go, oh, okay, now I started to really develop a bigger understanding of what anxiety was. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so I I needed to start moving forward just in tiny, tiny, tiny achievable ways. So I just did, did little things like um, I started moving my body um, and the physicality of music is something that we don't. So music is this one big thing, but it's made up of all these different musical elements. And we tend to think of music as the big thing. We think of it as the performance or the song we listen to or the music we sing or make, but it's actually all these things. It's vibration, melody, rhythm, harmony, tempo. Mm. Um, And so, and physicality is a really important part of music. We are musical beings. So the way we move is part of our musical expression. So I started just each day moving as I was walking up and down the stairs. I'd just be moving my arms and moving my hips in weird ways. And so I just did, this was it. This was how I started. Just a simple thing that this became my little routine as I walked up and down the stairs is that I was just doing funny little moves. Um, And I really quickly, because, I, at the same time, this was a big year, I um, decided to go to, because here's the funny thing, I couldn't function in normal ways very well, as in having conversation, like I said, making a cup of tea, uh, but I, the only thing that I could do and do really well was really highly analytical <laughs> thought processing. So once the kids went to bed, I would sit up and read research and do literature reviews. <laughs> and at the time, I was really passionate in looking at a palliative approach to dementia care because I was working in aged care a lot and I realised that dementia care is a palliative condition, 
but not being treated as such. Um, so I was reading the research and I was putting stuff together and I did a project. I got a grant for it. I, present, I ended up presenting the research from this project at the World Congress of Cognitive Behavioural Therapy and the International Dementia Conference. It was, a, it was like I did a, basically a PhD just in my own at home at night time. person on the spectrum would do it all. Yeah, I know. So it's so funny that I didn't realise I was autistic as well, looking like Um, So I decided at this time I needed to do something where I could think and I studied with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy and I really, that's when everything cemented together. I started to understand my own brain way, way better and my daughter's. I understood why I wasn't happy in the music I was doing, the music therapy work I was doing. Um, I realised how we are such musical beings and that everybody has the potential to access that themselves if they're taught how. And I really realised that no one is teaching anyone how. So we go to our therapist and they do the work, but no one is teaching us how to do the work. I will pick more and more people are starting to. But at that time, especially in music therapy, there was no one really teaching people or showing people how or, or just supporting people to become empowered with the knowledge that they can do it firstly and then um, giving them information about music and how it how it's processed in the brain what goes on in the brain with music and how we can use it to stay regulated how it affects our nervous system and that kind of stuff so 2016 was that big year where my whole world changed and um, that's led me to where I am now mm, sounds amazing there was one thing you've, you've danced around there that really clicked for me in your webinar you pointed out about how music for the western world has become this performative thing where there are musicians and entertainers and then there are people that enjoy that and music for most people is a voyeuristic sort of thing of they'll sit and listen or watch and be entertained uh, now and they super judge themselves if they want to sing dance whatever mm -hmm. I've I've utilised the analogy of that quite a lot with artistic things and a little bit with dance, but it really helped bring that in for me to, to realise that, like, I always tell people, draw like however you draw, create stuff and don't judge it. Like, if a five-year-old brings you a, a picture of the house, you always say, this is awesome, this is amazing, blah, 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 and talk about it and get excited. If an adult brings you the same picture, you're like, what the hell? This is a piece of crap. Uh, and we judge it. Or if we've drawn that ourselves, we're like, oh, my God, my kid draws better than me. <laughs> uh, I've noticed the same. I've definitely noticed the same thing with arts-related stuff. Hmm. And I've noticed how different it is to anything like sport. So if our child was playing cricket or footy or something like that and they were really bad and they always dropped the ball, we'd never go, oh, you shouldn't play. This is yeah. really bad. We always encourage them. But when it comes to arts, if they if someone writes a song, we feel like we get an opinion and we're like, oh, that's not very good. Yeah. Like he's not really a singer. <laughs> and that's all just ingrained from what you said, like our own, we are victims of this whole shift that happened a few hundred years ago in the Western music world where all, we went from sharing music. Music was a shared experience. All the arts in all the cultures around the world have always been a shared collective communal experience. Mm. And then all of a sudden in the Western world, the elite people became musicians and everyone else were just like the peasants who got to listen and 
we are victims of that because we still hang on to that and we still go, oh, no, I can't sing. I'm not musical. Yeah. It's really sad. It is. Uh, it got me thinking about the the tribal aspects and the animism cultures that have they have a real connection to music and the whole community gathers together. Like in Australia we have, they have robberies where they they all dance and play music and connect in with each other with that and i i remember years ago watching some kind of documentary uh it was either about jazz or hip-hop but their thing why they said that was working so well was the african-american community that was there had grown up with music but more so they were linking it that closer genetic wise they'd been linked to cultures that had music so it was like in their genes and they were talking about how with the babies they tap the babies to the beat of the music to help them get used to the the rhythm yeah. and I thought well I don't think it's a genetic thing I think it's more like what you said it's that trust and acceptance and openness to just be play dance. yeah to just bring our musical selves mm. Mm. Uh, so with that, would you mind telling us uh, a little bit about this, this 12 pillars, which I know you've got an ebook out that I'll have a link to. Uh, and uh, if the dodgy recording of the webinar <laughs> uh, is, is available, I can put a link to that too. Or the next time you've, you've done something, I'll find something to re-edit that list so people can go into it deeper. But I'd, I'd like you to, to share some of these 12 pillars and what they are because they really inspire yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I was with my work because I guess because I'm coming from a music therapy background, it was really important for me to show, be able to show people with science and research and also my own sort of lived experience and work experience that there was a direct neurologic health-related physical result and response to different elements of music. So this is why I came up with the 12 pillars of brain care. So firstly, brain care is brain care is what I'm really passionate about, caring for our brains to function at their best. That's my that's my goal. Um this is not about changing anyone or fixing anyone or trying to get people to be smarter or faster or better mm. or more like someone else so they can pass tests and achieve outcomes at school. This is just about supporting us to function at our best. Um, and my my definition of brain care is um, brain care is giving our brain more of what helps it run and less of what shuts it down. Mm-hmm. So basically everything we're doing, everything we're exposed to in our environments um, and everything we do and, and everything we allow in, it's either something that helps our brain or is too much for our brain or too hard for our brain or shutting us down a bit or taking up too much energy. So it's really about just understanding. Uh, We really need to understand what the brain needs more of and what the brain needs less of. And I'll I'll just preempt all of this talk about the 12 pillars by saying whether we uh, recognise that we experience anxiety or not, just just the mere fact that we are all people living in this modern, western, rushed, hectic, loud, fast, expectation-dense, outcome-focused modern world um, means that we are living in a world that our brain was not designed to function at its best in. Mm. 
uh, sort of post-industrial revolution, we have just, um, we expose ourselves and we have access to things that no humans across the whole of human history have ever had access to. And so no brains have ever had to make sense of it or process it or tell us how to react or respond in relation to our environment in, a, in the way it does now. And that's just getting the trajectory of how much new information and how mu much more things that we end up in our environment the trajectory of that, the way it's growing is so fast, we're just getting more and more and more and more things in our life and more technology and more accessibility. And our brain literally has never had the time it needs to evolve to cater for all of the stuff, all of the information we now have in our lives. So this is for everyone. We, are, we might not be noticing it, but it's probably because this has become our normal. But I wanna um I wanna just take a stab in the dark here and say that we probably all are experiencing anxiety. It's a physiological response in our body. We don't even notice it all the time. And it's not just the people who are worried about things or nervous. It's got nothing to do with our nervous disposition or our personality type. It's literally that we are more tense than ever before mm. and that we are uh uh, less vibrant than ever before and that we are very, very overloaded with sensory information. This is across the board, not just for people with sensory processing disorder. So it really, it's really important to understand all of this so that we can really commit to brain care and commit to understanding the impact music has on our brain so that we can use music strategically to help us function at our best. And so... This is why I came up with the 12 pillars of brain care. And these 12 pillars are all different, um, I guess, different focus areas. And all of these focus areas directly impact the functioning of our brain. And all of these pillars of brain care can absolutely be supported using different elements of musicality. So the first one, the first pillar of brain care is emotional release. We have become a very pent-up society. We, um, our children release emotion beautifully. Um, they constantly release their emotion. <laughs> they're, they're, they can be aggressive. They can cry. They can scream. They'll sing. They'll, you know, they'll just completely innocently be themselves. And we think of that as childlike. Um, unfortunately, us adults think that we can release emotions by discussing them with our friends <laughs> and then rationalizing them away and that doesn't matter that doesn't work because uh, you'd know this emotion um is energy in motion it just Thanks. it has to move yes it has to even just even just feeling it is allowing it to move um but we definitely don't release our emotions enough. We have sort of unwritten rules about how we do it, especially women. Women do not want to be seen as hysterical, so we feel like there's a certain amount of time we can be emotional and then we have to pull ourselves together. And then there's places like we don't, we're not allowed to release our emotions in the workplace. We're not allowed to release our emotions in front of strangers. We're not allowed to release our emotions in front of other people who might have, who we might think uh, have more valid reasons to be emotional. And we have all these rules yeah. that mean we are keeping our emotions pent up inside us. Um, and 
any emotion that isn't being moved, that isn't actually being felt or accessed and it's just becoming pent up just leads to more, just like if you think of every little emotion as just a drop of water building up and building up and building up into like a big overflowing um, glass of water, that's that's what happens when we have meltdowns, breakdowns, outbursts. Um, so music one of the cool things about melody specifically is that it activates the limbic system, which is the part of our brain that processes and is sort of um, in control of our emotions, which is why we often cry when we listen to very melodic music like musical theatre, um, the Disney movies. <laughs> I personally always um, I try and have a little cry every day. And I find that that really helps me um, stay nice and regulated without any big pent-up emotion stuff going on. And I often find that if I just <laughs> hop onto my phone and find a little Britain's Got Talent audition <laughs> video, they always make me cry. They have, this, they have this music that goes on in the background as they're telling their sad story and then the song's always amazing and you're like, oh, my gosh, imagine being that person just singing for the first time in front of the world and they're this good and all of it combined <laughs> just makes me cry and I have this little cry every day. So um, in a nutshell, when it comes to music, we can say that. as well to, to laugh too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's not bad crying. It's not no. bad crying. It's just a release. So it's a, it's every bit as positive or healthy as laughing. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, and definitely. laughter and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But I definitely have to watch where I get my, where I, how I induce my tears because if I was to turn on the news and start crying that way, that would not have a good effect on my, uh, regulation that is not what I'm looking for I'm looking for neutral tears that have been accessed because my limbic system has been triggered not because I can't make sense of the world around me and what's going on in the world mm. so yeah Melody's really really good at accessing um accessing emotion there's lots and lots of ways we can use music and Melody in specific uh to help our children or ourselves to access emotion and release emotion do you want me to go through all of these? Do you want me to try and be a bit more brief? Yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll see how we go. We can either do half of them detailed or and in time oh, to come check out your book or uh, a brief <laughs> overload uh, and then I, they need to go deeper by looking in the book. Yeah, I'm going to go I'm from now on. see how we go. <laughs> oh, I know, but we could be here all day because I do get very passionate about this stuff, so... I'm going to go through the rest of them in a nutshell, okay. okay? Predictability is the second pillar of brain care. Predictability is really important because a brain that can predict what's going on in an, its environment is a brain that feels safe. Mm -hmm. And a brain that feels safe is not in survival mode. So predictability, um, and it isn't just about having a routine. We can create a sense of predictability in our environment through repetition and especially through using music because music, um, especially like hip-hop or drumming, something that's repetitive and doesn't change and it's just going over and over and over and over, if we have something like that, even if we're just passively listening to it, we don't have to actively be involved in it. We can just have it softly going on in the background of the classroom or our home. 
it helps us, it creates a sense of predictability. It helps our brain stay feeling safe and not in survival mode. One of uh, my favourite authors, uh, Chuck Polinok, he wrote like Fight Club and a bunch of other things. Uh, He picks a song when he's going to write a book and he plays that on repeat while he writes a book. So he's in a rhythm and a flow and so he's, brain has that predictability uh so yeah i heard that like a dozen years ago and i've i've noticed that that anchor of something really helps to keep momentum going with yeah. stuff noise hello me listen to the same song again and again and again <laughs> but uh <laughs> I, I can see the value yeah i did it with my when i was in when i was having my babies i listened to one song and my, my babies took a long time. I was in 48 hours of childbirth all over. I had 48 hours of the one song over and over and over and over with both births. <laughs> and it helped. kept me calm. It's sort of hypnot- it's hypnotic to have this repetitious thing just never ending. Hmm. So sensory breaks. is Sensory breaks are the third pillar of brain care. We just have too much sensory information in our environments. Our brain needs a break. So it's really important to have times, little times every day where we either shut our eyes, block our ears with headphones or just um, do something that isn't highly under fluorescent lights with a thousand things around us and we need to really start to consciously bring sensory breaks into our days. The fourth pillar of brain care is using our voice and that is mainly because our voices have become very conditioned and controlled we judge what other people say and do with their voice. Mm-hmm. And we are now a culture where we use our voice very sensibly, mostly only in talking or conversation. Uh, we've lo- we don't even whistle or hum anymore. Yeah. Like only a couple of generations ago, people were singing in public and whistling. And so we need to remember our voice because when we use our voice, we activate the vagus nerve, which helps to regulate which brings down our heart rate, brings down our respiratory rate. So just the actual the act of using our voice, especially in laughter or crying um, or whistling, uh, panting, sighing, screaming, swearing, there are so many ways we can use our voice in, in ways that helps us and our nervous system to regulate. Um, we need to pull back from information because this is the fifth pillar of brain care because we just have far too much information around us we don't need and it's just clogging us up. We need to do the sixth pillar of brain care is creative self-expression. We need to do way more self-expression that is not um, for a specific purpose like a creative outcome or we want it to look like someone else's or we, we have a reason for doing it. We need to access mindful expression and express ourselves mindfully without any purpose or any outcome, you know, like we're not making the the craft that's going to go in a competition and we want it to be perfect. That's not true creative expression. And our brain needs us to do this stuff because this is an act of emotional release. So when we are completely and mindfully just expressing ourselves in any which way we like, um, our brain gets such a break. It doesn't have to be thinking, oh, but I want it to be more like this or oh, uh, I, I better not, if anyone saw that, it would look a bit silly. I should do it more like this. Um, That's a so, 
gateway for the the subconscious to to release and to to release uh, i know a lot of art therapists that the amount of people that have deep realizations of what's actually going on the problem in their life after just sitting down and painting or drawing for an hour or something that it's like oh this looks like that oh maybe i need to deal with this (laughs) yeah Uh, jung spent a bunch of work uh dealing with that active imagination of flowing artistically from the subconscious so i think it's really highly powerful and potent it's so potent and the, the truth is we really it's almost impossible to be emotional and cognitive at the same time so when we are when we are expressing ourselves with a purpose in mind we are thinking about what we need to do we can't be being our emotional selves so it really does take true emotional expression and to stop thinking to get out of our cognitive conscious brain and just be truly accessing who we are at our most authentic core that's when we do start to to have realizations into who we are and what we need and all of that kind of stuff So vagal tone, we need to focus more on activating our vagus nerve so that our, our heart rate and our respiratory rate stay nice and low. A fair few people will not understand what a, a vagus nerve might be. So would you mind uh, going into a little bit more detail on, on that because it's highly important and it, and it certainly does. It's, it's a key component of, of these pillars that links into a fair few. Yeah, but. yeah, sure. So the vagus nerve, it's this really big, it's the biggest cranial nerve in the body and it runs all the way up our trunk and up to the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is behind our um, forehead and behind our eyebrows. And this part of the brain is all to do with executive functions. So all of our ability to... Um, make decisions, engage, focus, transition between activities, inhibit our behaviours, analyse. So basically anything that we need to do to um, fulfil any goal requires executive functions and they they all come from just behind our eyebrows. Now this part of the brain is a fairly new modern part of the brain and it gets worked up really quickly because we have just far too much information coming at it to make sense of that it can handle Mm. um now the vagus nerve comes up here and attaches to the front of the prefrontal cortex so when our vagus nerve becomes active um it actually helps it's the first port of call in reducing our experience of anxiety it really calms us down takes us out of this cognitive mind can help to stop us thinking too much and uh, it brings down our heart rate, it brings down our respiratory rate, and we start to experience less of an anxiety response. Um, The ways that we activate the vagus nerve are by breathing is a really good one because when we do a deep breathing where our gut expands, that sort of expansion of the diaphragm, the muscle there, uh, triggers the vagus nerve um to activate and it immediately brings down our heart rate so it's really really incredible there's so much truth to the whole um take a deep breath and count to three old wives tale like this is science this is amazing we should be taking a deep breath and counting to three 
Um, singing, anything with our throat is a really good one for activating the vagus nerve, only because it runs all the way up through this very centre of our body. So anything that we can move physically in our body along this sort of line in the centre is going to activate it. So speaking, laughing, singing, gargling is a really good one. I gargle a little bit whenever I do my teeth, when I clean my teeth, and I just know that there is a little moment there in the morning, a little moment at night where I'm at consciously activating my vagus nerve. And the more we do this over and over, the more toned the vagus nerve becomes. So that's what vagal tone is. We want vagal tone because the more, the stronger this vagus nerve is and the more dominant um, this is for us, the quicker we'll be able to utilise it, the quicker it switches on, the more often it sort of switches on and does its job, um, just like any other muscle group really. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does, yes. On the webinar, you also said of a different way that I hadn't thought of before and I really liked it for somebody who doesn't think they can get away with doing any of those things is reading out loud. Uh, I really yes. liked that. that. That clicked in for me that yeah. it doesn't take long to read something out loud. It does make you slow your breath down because you've got to get a sentence out. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this this is why brain care is not is just so simple. Uh, it's it's already so many of the things we're already doing are supporting our brain to function at its best. Uh, we just don't realise it. Once we realise it, we can consciously do more of it, like reading to our children or just reading out loud. I drove across Canada once in a van and I read out the whole of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with to the guy who was driving. And I read the entire book out loud because we didn't have a radio in the van and it just felt so good. And I have not read out loud since I was a school child who had to read out in the classroom. Mm. But reading out loud is, is controlled breathing because, like you said, you read a sentence and then you breathe in and you read another sentence and you breathe in. Same with singing out loud. Mm. Um, so we don't have to train or do anything crazy and really tricky to be able to to really support our our vagus nerve. Yeah, yeah reading out loud is a really cool one. The vocal bit also has an extra brain care thing on top of that because the your spinal column has the cerebral fluid through it and it's vibrating that. What happens when you vibrate liquid? It creates yes. more flow. So it helps get that cerebral fluid up in and around your brain, brain flowing and back down your spine so it's not being stagnant so it's a, yeah. it's a really powerful part of it mm. and the vibration of music is something uh we don't think about too much because we don't think of it in the western world uh, you know we don't even get taught about it in the western world but vibration of sound and is one of the most powerful healing elements of mm. of music um yeah so then we're almost we're up to the eighth pillar of rank here now <laughs> Slowing down. It's so important to slow down. Uh, throughout the whole of human history, until we had cars, which wasn't that long ago, mm. no one has been fast. No. Everyone's just walked or maybe ridden horses. But there's been no planes, no cars, no fast, no going up elevators, up 30 stories in the sky. We are putting our bodies in positions where they are moving so fast in all sorts of different ways. And it is because our environment, when our environment is fast and the things are zooming past us as we look out the window of the car or the train and the 
everything's just zooming past, it act it uh, hyper stimulates our different parts of our brain, like the motor cortex, which is um, runs across the top of your head, and it's in charge of all our conscious movements. Now, when our environment is fast-paced, especially when we can hear stuff that's fast-paced, like we can hear lots of people running around, rushing around and making lots of noise and it's very hectic, when we can hear hectic, fast stuff, our motor cortex becomes really hyper-stimulated. So we act hyperactive. And so the children, especially um, because adults mostly are better at inhibiting our behaviours, we're not we're less likely to swing on our chair and run around at the dinner table and climb the chandeliers and run away in and out of the room and not be able to sit still. But that doesn't mean we're hyperactive. That just means we are not allowing ourselves to do it because we're adults and we shouldn't. Mm. So children are acting in the ways that we would all be probably acting if we didn't have this inhibition control that we do as adults. It's really, really important to slow down so that our brain can just come down from this hyper-stimulated state it's in. So simple. Breath work is the ninth pillar of brain care. Um, For everything I've just said about the vagus nerve, breathing is really important. But then there's the added benefits of we need oxygenated blood circulating around our body for us to be functioning at our best. And we need such a tiny percentage of our capacity to breathe in in our just sort of constant breathing. So it's really important to have breath work as part of our practice. And this can take any shape. We don't have to learn new ways. We don't have to get it right. We can literally just sing out loud and read out loud. But that that controlled breathing allows more time for oxygen to be sort of diffused into the bloodstream. And then that oxygenated blood is flowing around our brain, which helps to helps it all to stay connected. So we can access our prefrontal cortex where all the decision-making stuff is. Um, so when I was at my my sort of lowest, I guess, time when I, when I couldn't put conversations together and I couldn't follow instructions or um, I couldn't complete jobs, I my prefrontal cortex was basically completely disengaged from the feeling part of my brain. So I was feeling lots of stuff. I was feeling very anxious and heightened and but I was not able to think but I was not able to make decisions or to access any cognitive sort of ability to help myself in this situation and when we give our brain freshly richly oxygenated blood flowing all the way through it um it's just such so important for our uh, neurotransmission and our neural pathways in the brain to be able to talk to all the different parts to keep it working as one whole. Um, Physical movement is the 10th pillar of brain care. We store so much tension in our physical bodies, so much, and the physicality of movement Music is really important. There are so many ways we can we, we automatically move our body. It's like when we hear something with a rhythm, like when you go to a gig or live music, there's always a part of you will be tapping your toes or even if you're not outwardly dancing in time to the music, you will at least be having some kind of clenching of a muscle group in time to the rhythm yeah. because our motor cortex makes us, makes us behave uh, in response to the rhythms that we're hearing. 
So we are musical beings. We are already having a physical reaction to all the music we hear, um, but we can consciously do more of that so that we can move our bodies more and that releases tension. I found with that as well, the more organic the sound is, the more that happens. It really struck a moment for me probably 10 years ago. I went to a gig in Sydney, um, the Bird and Wild Marmalade, and they were having like they had they didn't have drums for one part they had lo- hollow logs that they were tapping and didgeridoo and stuff like that and i i was i would never dance back then i was like no <laughs> like too square for that uh and i found myself dancing I'm like I, I can't not yes uh and that really clicked that that organic sound really connects with your body and soul you don't have a choice yeah yeah i mean our body the brain the brain has been hearing music like that since the beginning of time yeah so our brains are very highly evolved to feel safe around that kind of music Mm. Uh, anything that's artificial or new or synthetic or really is quite modern is is the stimulus that we're more likely to have some kind of anxiety response to it just because the fact that it's new and our brain needs to get used to it and process it before it knows exactly that it's safe Mm. Mm -hmm. so structure the last two pillars of brain care are things that we really need to do for ourselves to enable that all the rest of this takes place and that is to create structures and boundaries we sort of need to parent ourselves we need to tell us the way we do our children they have a bedtime they have to eat we have rules that's there for their safety and their well-being, and we need to do that a bit more with ourselves. So um, each day I will do some breath work or um, each day I will have some sensory breaks and we need to really stick to our boundaries mm. and create structures uh, within our daily life so that this isn't just a, oh, now I'm starting to get anxious so I'm going to listen to some playlists and do some um, creative self-expression. It can't be like that. This stuff has to be just part of our lives, of our everyday, of part of our everyday routine lifestyle. And the final pillar of brain care is connection to self. So this does not mean that we have to find our life's purpose or anything really that sounds hard or, you know, I mean, that's wonderful if we do have a soul's purpose, but This is more about just experimenting with our authenticity in tiny little ways, just saying yes to the things that we really feel yes or no to the things that feel no or um, experimenting with the way we do things within our home or within our garden, like just really tiny, tiny little ways that we can um, experiment with who we are at our core. And this will be an ongoing thing because we never sort of come to the state where we're like, I am completely authentic now. (laughs) (laughs) But when we're not aligned with our truest authentic self, it's like, uh, I think I gave the analogy the other day on the webinar, it's like when you've got a a lie detector strapped to your body Yeah. and if you're saying yes to something that in your mind is a no or if you're dressing a particular way just because you feel like you should but it doesn't align with who you are, imagine what's happening inside your body. The way, the way your body physiologically is reacting to this, it's like the, the lie detector test when you say it, when they lie, the whole needle goes and it's scribbling crazily up and down. That's 
that's the sense that's happening inside us whenever we aren't aligned with our truth. So this is a really big one, but this this um, pillar of brain care is really just about experimenting with that. It's not coming up with the answers. It's just trying stuff out. Yeah, experimentation is huge because there's no risk to that. You can always go back to the old. Yeah. It's terrible. And Exactly. I've noticed I used to wear a lot of different masks to, to fit in with people. Uh, and part of that with how my, my son is on the spectrum, maybe, maybe I am a tiny bit, maybe I'm not, I don't know, but I know I definitely assimilate well, you know, fitting right. to different <laughs> groups and places and things. Yeah. But the more I realised I was wearing those masks and the more I slowly took those off and was being my authentic self, the more I actually found out I created better bonds with people. I created real friendships and I was appreciated for who I was rather than who I was pretending to be. And that is very rewarding for your brain and, and for yourself oh, that so you actually validated who you are and the people that don't just fade out of your life anyway because, yeah. well, they, they obviously weren't people you needed in your life. Yes. And it's the more you start to trust in yourself, the more you actually get rewarded for it. But it's a scary thing to start stepping into. But those little experiments help you see it safe and trust. Yeah. The things you say yes to and things you say no to. Uh, a psychologist friend of mine I quote all the time. I love this thing that I, I think she came up with it. Maybe she stole it off somebody else. I don't know. I'm going to credit her with it. So she has this saying of everything you say yes to, you're saying no to something else. And everything you say no to, you're saying yes to something else. So when you're making decision, it's great to have this pause and say, well, what's the other end of this situation? Not to get anxiety and think about it for an hour and overthink it, but just to realize, okay, I'm, um, I'm going to do this thing, but that means I, I, I can't do the other thing. If I'm going to eat the cake, that means I say no to my diet. If I'm going to go for this walk, that means I'm saying no to being lazy, that your choices have got a positive and a negative side of things to, to focus on what's going to suit you and, and your thing. Yeah. If I do this for my family, I've got to drop this for myself. Sometimes it's going to be column A and sometimes it's going to be column B. You've got to make sure there's an evenness with some of these things that you you do and uh so I, I do like that this authentic self is a is part of these 12 pillars of brain care because it is a huge thing to have that choice yeah it's it's huge and also the the final two pillars of brain care they're sort of they pervade across all of it a lot they're all you will have noticed so many of them overlap yes um and the way i I really landed at these exact 12 pillars is that all of them could be addressed using music. So I really wanted to combine my work as a music therapist with what I know of, of how we can support the brain to function better. Um, so it's not like these are the only, these are the, the 12 things that are going to, you know, solve the world. This is just a reflection of how we can use music and different elements of music to support ourselves better. Mm. I love how all those still they're still very empowered that it's it's not that performative thing. It's not something that has to be perfect or good or anything. It's just very basic tools that 
anyone mm. could integrate in their life. Like you could teach that to a four-year-old and they could do that. Yeah. I mean, I've been trying to teach my four-year-old to slow down. <laughs> One day he might get it. No, but I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, there's no, there's no big deals here. Mm. This is just really common sense stuff that we over time have forgotten because we are in this modern Western world. And the fact that we are living in an era that our brain is not really compatible for uh, functioning smoothly in um, is not our fault, yet we can be accountable for our choices that we make and we can pull back from stuff. We can recognise where we need to uh, pull back and where we need to, um, uh, I want to say pull in but do more of, um, to counteract or counterbalance this impact that the world around us is having. Yeah, I think these kind of self-care tools are the sort of thing that we really do need to focus on going forward, like with the changes that happened in the last 10 years, 15 years even. The next 10 or 15 years are going to be insane if people don't start making it. Yes. And there's a big, um, with the me being an autistic person and working very much with, um, in the last few years as a music therapist, I've worked almost solely with autistic children and parents of autistic children and autistic parents. Um, And, you know, everyone's quite, so many people ask, why, where is this influx of autism coming from? What's going wrong? And what they talk about an epidemic. and, And the fact is there have been neurodiverse people throughout the whole of human history, but our lifestyles, the world that we live in, has never been so demanding. It's never been so fast and loud and artificial. And so neurodivergent people, while, you know, we can we can imagine in our mind like the really um, elusive man, guy who lives in his hut in the bush and doesn't talk to anyone and the crazy auntie and we can pick out some people that really struggle to fit in, on the whole neurodivergent people might have really struggled but were able to assimilate a lot easier Mm. than we can now simply because the demands of our environment do not suit the brain's ability to be able to function. And so we are so much more sensory overloaded. So it's so much harder for children to sit, to be in a classroom and to be expected to do things that are naturally difficult for them because they might be autistic or have ADHD or might be neurodivergent. Um, than it ever has been before. I also think it potentially, like I, I definitely have seen it throughout history. I can read a history book and go, well, this person is autistic. <laughs> but I oh, yeah. question how much of it is that next evolutionary step that our bodies and brains are trying to work out, okay, how do we deal with this much information? How do we deal with this much speed and so add helps jump from a b c d e f back to a b or c to jump from thing to thing and autism has this magical ability to have innate focus on a task and really make use of the information and skills that are there to to create something like an insane amount of today's technology comes from somebody who was autistic that had this narrow focus like what you said when you 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 spent your evening doing an essential phd you all your focus into something and you created something wonderful it was a way to work with the way our lives are going so i can i can certainly see a 
a superpower in autism that it could be the next evolutionary step. Just trying to I mean, you only have to look at Greta. Yes. Greta Thunberg and what she's doing. She's a perfect example right at this time in history. Um, yeah, you're, you're spot on, but it comes with an inability to really function in the world yeah. without lots of lots of struggle. So it's a double-edged sword. Oh, it is. That's what it's still trying to fine-tune its process, obviously. It's really, really difficult. And and I just think that the environment, I just, the environment and the expectations placed upon us um, are so out of the ordinary and so, mm. uh, so heightened as to what humans have ever been expected to do ever before that, uh, if only the environment and the systems in our environment, especially the school, school school system and stuff like that, could sort of meet us halfway, we'd all be able to function a lot more easily. I think so. Uh, we do have to just t- take accountability. And I also think that when we practice this stuff, when we practice brain care, um, and we don't even have to teach this stuff to our children. If we are doing it and our children are seeing us doing it, we are planting seeds for them to learn how to regulate to look after their needs, to understand that they need to have time out and they need to be slow and they it's okay to cry and it's okay to interpretive dance and um, it's okay to hum and whistle in public. When we do it, they learn that it's okay and they're going to need that because their world in 20 years is going to be so, like 20 years ago, I didn't even have internet. So to think what the different in the world will be in 20 years' time, they're going to need Yes. To be able to self-regulate and we need to start teaching, we need to do it ourselves so that they um, can model that from us. Definitely. The subconscious absorbs in the first eight years of your life, it absorbs the patterns and processes of what most of your life will be. Uh, most of my work is helping people realign those because mum and dad didn't know what they were doing and this, your operating system was built by copying their processes from what you've seen, heard, and experienced. And so if a parent does these sort of things, a kid might not do it when you tell them to, but their subconscious is watching and learning. And when it grows up, that's going to start to become normal, natural behaviors. When they get that first job and they get stressed, part of their mind is going to know, mom did this. It's time for me to to start singing. (laughs) time for me yeah. to, to do this stuff uh, yeah exactly. it becomes natural so as a parent i, I really feel that uh, doing those little things will certainly help your kids whether their your kids are doing it as well or not it's still going to help yeah and especially as parents of neurodivergent children i truly believe that the best way that we can support them to be their best is to help them learn how to regulate and to find calm because I have no intentions of trying to help my daughter fit in with anyone or be better at socialising or look at people when they're talking to them or anything like that. I just want her, I want to be able to support her and guide her to be able to self-regulate and that is the biggest thing that you can ask of anyone because we're all humans, we're all going to experience anxiety and if we're neurodivergent, we're going to experience it in a lot more complexity. So showing our children that they can that they really have the power to regulate is just so powerful it certainly is Uh, Mm. now i'm sure some people 
at home listening to this have, have been inspired by some of this and I'm sure they want to know a lot more. I know you have the Brain Care Cafe where you spend a month on each one of these 12 pillars where you go into detail and give people ways to utilize this, practice this and talk as a community about it. Do you want to yeah. tell them where they can go to, to find out about that and how long they've got to be able to get in if they can? Yeah, so I'll give you the link um, for the Brain Care Cafe. The Brain Care Cafe is a um, it's a space where, yeah, every, so there's 12 months in the year and there's 12 pillars of brain care, so it works out pretty beautifully. We focus on one brain care uh, pillar every month and every weekend I sort of give everybody a new brain care strategy that they can try out that supports that pillar of brain care. Um, and we have a closed Facebook group. We have a whole bunch of other stuff. There's a whole big bunch of new playlists that I've put together with mantras and affirmations and songs and stuff to support crying, songs to induce tears or songs to allow joy and hope and a whole bunch of, of, of different resources. There's a lot going on in there and the community is top notch. Everybody in the Brain Care Cafe is doing this work and, um, it's a really cool space to be. So Brain Care Cafe, um, it's, well, it's a long link, so I'll, I won't say it out loud. I'll just give it to you later and you can put it in your thing. Yeah. <laughs> but if anybody wants to join the Brain Care Cafe, we are open for new members until the 27th of November. Yes. That is coming up very soon. Mm. And I only open the doors to the cafe twice a year because we sort of, it becomes a really safe space and so I just don't want new people coming in all the time and sort of we we, we create a real connection in there and so it's I really do only open it every now and then. Um, and it costs $24 to join and it's $24 a month. It's a monthly subscription. So people can stay as long or as little as they like but I do encourage you to come and check it out if you're interested in this work. Excellent. And you sometimes run some in-person workshops. If they listen to this late and uh, miss that deadline, they can uh, check yes. whatever you've got coming up. Yeah. yeah, I've got some conferences coming up next year. I've been running conferences with Maggie Dent, who is like a really fabulous, amazing parenting. She's She's known as Australia's queen of common sense. So she's a fabulous parent and her conferences are brilliant and we're running conferences called um, Coming Today's Anxious Kids. So we've got a couple of those coming up in 2020, but I often um, do seminars and keynotes and talks all around Australia. Um, the best way to follow along with what I'm doing and where I might be doing an event near you is to join my um, email list. I don't email that often, so you're pretty safe with me. <laughs> Um, but my website is alisondavies.com.au and if you go there, you can join my um, mailing list there to find out when my events are. Fantastic. And I'll put a link to the the ebook as well so people can Thank you. read that. Thanks for coming on. I've really enjoyed this chat and I'm certain I know people listening to this will have something they can implement in their life from that. And I encourage everybody at home to, to at least play with, a couple of those you don't have to invest in all 12 but i'm sure after you've done one or two you will realize it's worth doing the rest mm. thank you so much for having me i'm so pleased i love talking about this as you can tell <laughs> so this has been a joy <laughs> 
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and perhaps learned something new. If you did, I'd love for you to subscribe or drop a review on whatever favorite podcast you have. Or if you've been enjoying the video versions on YouTube or Facebook, do it there. If something really did click home for you with this episode, perhaps it could benefit one of your friends or family. If so, it'd really help if you shared this on your social medias. Until next time, you've been listening to Akasha Talks with Lance Baker.